From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And today's show is called What We Ate and features true personal stories from writers Margarita Meyendorf, Kathy Curdo, and Stephen Lewis. I am six years old and obsessed with chewing gum. Gum is a forbidden substance. My parents don't allow me to chew it. I'm 11, and this is the first time ever that I see my father in a grocery store. My Aunt Betty from Hollis, Queens, holds out those thick, freckled arms, a pair of Hebrew national salamis jiggling from armpit to elbow. Stevie, doesn't your mother feed you? And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer Paul Hostovsky shares a personal meditation on writing. So I wake up with this line in my head, the proust is in the pudding, fishtailing around on the surface of a dream. That's all just ahead on Read 650. We begin today's show with Margarita Meyendorf. Better known as Morka to her friends, Margarita is the author of the memoir DP, Displaced Person. The daughter of a Russian baron, she was born in a displaced persons camp in Germany, far from the opulence of Imperial Russia. On today's show, Margarita recalls a seminal childhood moment as a recent immigrant to the United States. Here she is, recorded at Nancy Manicharian's The Cell Theater in New York City, reading Chewing Gum. I am six years old and obsessed with chewing gum. Gum is a forbidden substance. My parents don't allow me to chew it. Maybe chewing gum is not an aristocratic thing to do, and we are aristocrats. Maybe it's an American custom and we are Russian and Russians don't chew gum. I don't know. All I know is that I am a Russian aristocrat and for this little baroness, chewing gum is as desirable as it is forbidden. I start out with stealing gum from the grocery store on the corner of Main Street and Franklin and Nyack where my parents do their weekly shopping. I love bazooka the best. It's big in the mouth, and I love the pink color, the sugary texture, and the colorful comics that go with the label. Of course, I can't read the comics as I don't read English yet, but I love the pictures. I steal the gum, bring it home, hide it under my pillow in my bed, and chew it after my father and I recite the Russian Orthodox night prayer in Church Slavonic. Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere and fulfilling all the treasure of good and giver of life, come and abide in me and cleanse me from all evil. Save me. (laughs) Sometimes I fall asleep chewing gum and find the wad next to me in the morning, a big pink cold lump of goo. I promptly put the wad back in my mouth, chew it a little, drain all the sugar out, 
climb out of bed, and finally spit it into the toilet and flush. All traces gone. <laughs> Inevitably, I am caught stealing the gum. We are in the store, and I swipe the gum, and I hold it in my pockets, one pack in each pocket. My hands in my pocket for so long rouses my parents' suspicions, and they finally ask me to take my hands out of my pockets and show them everything I have. I am so ashamed. My parents escort me to the checkout lady. With the bazooka in my hand and in broken English, I have to confess to the cashier that I have taken the gum without paying for it. Nothing like this has ever happened. I have shamed my parents. All Russians disgraced the aristocracy. <laughs> I have blasphemed the Eastern Orthodox God who will now refuse to save me. I apologize and tell everyone standing around in my heavily accented English, I will never steal gum again. <laughs> and I don't. I graduate from stealing gum to scraping up old gum from the sidewalk, <laughs> putting it in my mouth and chewing it. I enjoy the vestiges of mintiness and the sweetness that remain in it. Some of the pieces have a little gravel or dust stuck to them. No matter, it is gum and I love it. Chewing sidewalk gum goes on for a while <laughs> until finally I get an abscess on my lip. The abscess is like a large pimple that grows and grows. No one has a clue where this pimple has come from, but I have my suspicions. My punishment has begun in the future. When I am offered gum, even when someone tempts me with a demonstration of a snap and a crackle and a surreal, expanding, big, bright bubble of neon pink bazooka, my answer is a vehement, no thanks. Russian aristocracy notwithstanding, I have chewed my last. <laughs> Margarita Mayendorf has performed as an actress, dancer, musician, and storyteller at venues throughout the United States and Europe. And she's most recently published an anthology of short stories based on her life's adventures. It's entitled, Flipping the Bird. Kathy Curdo teaches at the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College and Montclair State University. She also serves as a teaching artist in the River of Words program sponsored by the Beacon Institute a subsidiary of Clarkson University. Kathy is the author of Not For Nothing, Glimpses Into a Jersey Girlhood. And here she is on stage at the Cell Theater reading Roaming the Isles of the A&P. Oh, Madonna, look at it outside. A friggin' blizzard, my father says, pushing open the front door. Jesus, Freddie, it's really coming down, my mother says. I watch them from the hallway's end. The wind makes her blue velour robe sway across her ankles. He closes the door and wipes off the snowflakes that swirled in and landed on her shoulders and hairdo. Jim, her beautician, did a beehive last Saturday, 
and it had to last all week. I need to get to the A.M.P. before it gets any worse, she says. I gotta pick up some things. Today's a good soup day. I'll make a nice pot of vegetable beef soup. When will it be a good milkshake and pizza day? That's what I'd like to know. We all walk back into the kitchen and my mother pours his coffee. I sit down and eat my quisp and try to figure out answers to riddles on the side of the box. My father adds milk to his cup, stirring hard and fast. The spoon clinks on the inside. Some mornings, I hear his clinking spoon from my bedroom. That's how I get up for school and know he's leaving for work soon. My father gets to the gas station early to do his book work and get ready for his customers. What are you, nuts, he blurts. I smell his cigarette breath. You can't drive in this weather. He unzips his jacket and blows his nose into the red bandana he keeps in the back pocket. I'm closing the shop today. Nobody's coming out anyway. Give me a list. I'll go. And you, he says and points to me. You go get dressed. You're coming with me. Everything stops. Everything stands still. Frozen. Silent. My father and I never go anywhere alone together. Just us two. It's always just my mom and me. Frickin' frack, she calls us. Now what? I've got nothing to say to him if nobody else is around. The radio announcers and television guys are going on and on about this blizzard of 78. That's what they're calling it, and, and it could be the worst one to hit in decades. I shiver, but it's got nothing to do with the snow. It comes from the place in me where worry grows, where it lives. I imagine us alone in the car. I imagine silence, his cigarettes, and the sound of my cracking gum. I'm 11, and this is the first time ever that I see my father in a grocery store. I heard stories from my mother about when I was a baby. He had sometimes picked up formula or diaper pins on his way home from work, but I never believed her. I just thought they were dumb stories that made him out to be somebody's he's not. Some grocery shopping daddy who wore faded blue jeans, listened to rock and roll, and read Dr. Seuss books at bedtime. The father I know wears a work uniform every day and then shines his fancy dress shoes at night. He listens to Sinatra and Jerry Vale and reads only the Asbury Park Press. And that does not happen at bedtime. It happens at dinner. And now here we are, buying soup stuff together, roaming the aisles of the AMP during the blizzard of 78. I'm wheeling the cart and he's shuffling around looking like he's lost in China or Africa or some other faraway place. But something happens and that weird look fades. His face brightens. Is he happy? The snow's coming down harder and faster, but somehow it's not mattering to him or to me. We pick through all of the greens and find the freshest they have left. We search the cold meat shelves for exactly the kind of bones my mother wants for her soup because she says the bones are what give it the flavor. And we buy lots of stuff she didn't even put on the list. Root beer, black licorice, lupini beans, butterscotch pudding, hard salami, all the stuff he likes. It's funny how things go. I mean, how they turn out sometimes. Root beer, black licorice, lupini beans, butterscotch pudding, and hard salami. That's all the stuff I like, too. Kathy Curdo's work has been published in the anthology Listen to Your Mother, What She Said Then, What We're Saying Now, and in the New York Times, Barrel House, Talking Writing, and many other literary journals. 
She's been a recipient of the Catherine Gerfine Writing Fellowship, the Montclair State University Engaged Teaching Fellowship, and serves on the faculty of the Joe Papaleo Writers Workshop in Satara, Italy. Kathy lives in the Hudson Valley with her husband and their four children. Stephen Lewis is a former mentor at SUNY Empire State College. He's a longtime member of the Sarah Lawrence College Writing Institute faculty and a longtime freelancer. He's the author of several fiction and nonfiction books, and his work has been published widely, including in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Christian Science Monitor, the Los Angeles Times, and elsewhere. Here's Stephen Lewis, recorded in New York City, reading Aunt Betty's Kishka. My Aunt Betty from Hollis, Queens, holds out those thick, freckled arms, a pair of pink Hebrew national salamis jiggling from armpit to elbow. <laughs> Stevie, she exclaims, as if she hadn't seen me the night before in my house in Roslyn Heights. Come here, pulling me nose first into that massive bosom. <laughs> Oh my God, you're so skinny, she wails. Doesn't your mother feed you? Inside that suffocating cleavage, I hear the muffled, icy voice of my mother right behind. He eats just fine, Betty. Well, Betty cackles, we got to fatten him up if we're ever going to eat him. And with that, I am dragged by the bony wrist into her steamy kitchen stuffed with red-cheeked ants in aprons, Miriam, Susie, Sylvia, Judy, and some women, distant cousins, I suppose, whom I've never seen in my nine years. <laughs> Aunt Miriam, a pint to Betty's gallon, turns from the hot stove in her ruffled apron. He looks just fine to me, Betty. Now let him go play with his cousins in the backyard. Miriam is an elementary school teacher in Queens and doesn't take guff from anyone except Uncle Mac, who is skinny and smokes a big cigar. I try to yank myself away, but I'm stopped short like a toy dog on a leash. Not before you have some of this, young man, Betty's free hand swooping around with a forkful of juicy, oniony brisket. And this, something pruny and gloppy. She waits it until it's all the way down the gullet and tightening her grip on my wrist, says with a wink to my about to be appalled Aunt Sylvia, who has airs. <laughs> It'll make good duties. <laughs> Sylvia rolls her eyes and then turns away. My mother glowers. Betty stands still as a Guernsey in a warm spring wind, one and clutching a dinner roll like my hero Johnny Padres holds a baseball, the other clamped on her skin and bones nephew, still yanking. Leave him alone, Betty, commands my mother. He wants to go out and play, don't you, Stevie, says timid Aunt Susie, standing behind Miriam. I turn my big-eared head and nod, careful not to open my mouth. From the corner of my eye, I see Betty drop the roll on the big table next to a toilet-sized tureen of matzo ball soup <laughs> and a 
and a platter of something I don't recognize. Let him go, Betty, orders five foot nothing Aunt Miriam. The massive bosom heaves up and down as the white sausages slowly loosen their grip on my wrist. But just as I twist away, my tongue is suddenly wrapped around something warm and rubbery skinned, something clumpy squishing out the sides. Eyes blurred, throat choked. I am now sweating so profusely I slide out of Betty's grip and race out the back door down the narrow steps to the tiny yard where my cousins Kenny and Jeffrey are playing. Bent over between the red and yellow tulips, I hear Jeffrey, Miriam's taciturn, beyond his year's son, explain to Kenny, Aunt Betty, and when I stand, purged, Jeffrey nods to Kenny and points to the back door like an oracle. Kishki. Stuffed derma. Cow intestines. Full of, he raises his eyebrows, you know what. <laughs> Stephen Lewis is a contributing writer at Talking Writing Magazine, and he's senior editor and literary ombudsman for Read 650. His new novel, The Lights Around the Shore, is published by Moonshine Cove. The stories you're hearing today, along with many others, are available in book form and ebook form. It's just one of the dozens of themed collections we've published to help fund our mission to promote writers, with titles like What We Wore, Summer Jobs, The Great Outdoors, and many others. A friend in California says that when he gets a new anthology, he reads all the stories like he's gorging on a bag of chips. A reader in Illinois says she parcels the stories out slowly, as if she's savoring a box of chocolates. Either way, they are delicious, and you'll find them all under the Shop tab on our website, read650.org. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati-Meyer, Karen Duques, and Shelley Sadler-Kenny. Our announcer is Fran Tuno, and our show was produced with assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from the National Arts Club, whose mission is to stimulate, foster, and promote public interest in fine and performing arts. Feature programs focus on all disciplines of the arts, and the National Arts Club hosts both members-only and weekly free public events, including exhibitions, theatrical and musical performances, along with lectures and readings. Learn more at nationalartsclub.org. Paul Hostovsky is the author of 12 books of poetry, most recently, Mostly, from Future Cycle Press. His poems have won many awards, including a Pushcart Prize and two Best of the Net Awards. He's been featured on Poetry Daily, Verse Daily, and The Writer's Almanac, among others. And today he offers a rare glimpse into his creative process, or the inner workings of his brain, with The Proust is in the Pudding. So I wake up with this line in my head 
The Proust is in the pudding, fishtailing around on the surface of a dream. And I grab it, I just take it, and I run with it downstairs to the computer, where I enter another kind of dream state, where I'm trying to follow the thread of the line into the poem. And I'm holding on to the line for dear life, like it's a bungee cord, and I'm bungee jumping through the poem, boing, boing, looking around for the thread, which is in here here somewhere. I know it is. I trust it is. It's like you have to trust the line and you have to trust the thread not to break when the line breaks into another line and another and another the way the line must, the way the dream breaks into day, like daybreak, like breakfast, like broken egg yolks. Okay, maybe not like broken egg yolks. Maybe the egg yolks are a little forced. Maybe I'll take them out later. And maybe I'll just put them back in again because I like my egg yolks broken. And also because sometimes you can do that in a good poem, especially if you're trusting in something bigger than yourself, something bigger than egg yolks, bigger than Proust and Madeleines and all the lost time in the world. Because if you trust in the line, then you're holding on to the line for dear life like a pull cord on a parachute. It's like you're parachuting down through the poem, but at the same time you're floating up. You can only do this in poetry. Up in the great hot air balloon of the poem, standing inside the little wicker basket with a few passengers, a few good readers, and Marcel Proust with his own wicker picnic basket full of madeleines, which is actually your source of heat, your open flame, pushing the envelope upward and powering the buoyant, antique, iridescent technology of the poem. Paul Hostoski makes his living in Boston as a sign language interpreter and Braille instructor. His book, Deaf and Blind, from Main Street Rag, is a collection of poems and stories about his life among the deaf and deaf-blind. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show, where writers of all genres contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, and you'll also find open submissions calls for upcoming shows. Well, that wraps things up for today, and we extend our thanks again to writers Margarita Meyendorf, Kathy Curdo, Stephen Lewis, and Paul Hostowski. For more Read 650, you can view hundreds of original performances on our YouTube channel, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.